Breaking the Circles of this Circular Economy. Interview with David Peck, Episode 25. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak to the people building the clean energy system by 2050. This week, we speak with Professor David Peck from Delft University of Technology. In this interview, David recounts his broad experience working both in industry and academia in the area of material sciences, and which we now label as the circular economy. It was a real honor to have David on to discuss the circular economy and sustainability in business. It is hard for me to provide a succinct summary of all the key points as we really delve into what this circular economy actually is. To draw on David's explanation, in this episode, we get into what tightening the circle means in the circular economy, from mining of rare earth minerals to the fallacy of recycling as a solution to our overconsumption of materials and resources. We uncover what the circular economy is and is not. It is not recycling but engaging at the design stage to ensure a more sustainable product is made. But again, this is insufficient and greater attention needs to be paid to where the resources are coming from and who is pulling them out of the ground. Hint, China may not be the most socially just place for mining. Understanding the value chain of products and services is essential for business leaders to shift their companies in time to be ahead of the social curve and efforts of their competitors. We discuss why there may now be an emerging international competition between countries to be the most innovative in securing their lead in sustainable technologies and services. There is not a scarcity of materials, but rather a scarcity in innovative means to develop the products and services we need to deliver a more sustainable economy. We also address the importance of equity and well-being in society. During the interview, I forgot the name of Mark Anelsky, who had a previous podcast episode of the Energy and Innovation podcast. I can definitely recommend that episode for a similar line of thinking of measuring well-being by different metrics. In the end, David and I come to the conclusion that people need to do sustainability. Listen to the podcast and you'll get to know why educating and helping people is his new mission. The intent of the My Energy 2050 podcast is to speak to the people building a clean energy system. If you like this episode, please comment on LinkedIn and share. And now for this week's episode. This week, we are speaking with Professor David Peck from Delft University of Technology. He is in the Faculty of Architecture and the Built Environment with a focus on the circular built environment and critical materials. As we will hear, he is active in a number of projects in these areas. David, welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast. Nice. I love the title. My Energy. I love it. Yeah, it's what I want What I want to see in the future. But also, I think, and actually, that's one of the last questions I will ask you is, what do you want to see in 2050? Mm. But don't answer it yet. No. I'll hold. No. Because first, I think it's important that we understand your background, actually. Mm -hmm. And I won't call it eclectic, but maybe I can let you explain how you became, I don't know, I would say so interested and so involved in this circular economy, because I can just see from your work that you really have this passion about it, and it it really drives what you do. So maybe if you could explain your background and and how how did you get interested in circular economy? Thank you very much. And yeah, I started off, I had a I had a career earlier on in the aerospace sector. So I call those my carbon days. Busy uh, on gas turbines, actually, working with gas turbines. And um, in the company where I was working, we had a bold, this is, we're back in the last century here, so that's okay. And we had a bold new initiative called Environmental and Health and Safety or something like that. And I was, I, we had a consultant come in and she was fantastic. And she just really got my interest going on the environmental issues. And I, and, I, and at the same time, I was doing work on uh, TQM and Kaizen and lean production and stuff like that, reducing waste. And so that's kind of really what got me started on the whole thing. At the same time, I was doing an MBA uh, part time in college and, um, there I got into and I had a chance to go to Denmark to look at uh, corporate social responsibility. So these things all start to come together, environmental, corporate social responsibility. 
And at the same time, I could see the company I was working with was not moving as fast as I was. So I made a switch over into academia. And that's where the the journey carried on. But it was, it was in that environment where I started. I, I, I've sort of had a mixed career. I, I've, I've done stuff in business school. I've done stuff in engineering school. I've done things in industrial design school in the UK and other places. And then I, I was very lucky to get in a European Union project, got an opportunity to come over to Delft University of Technology in around 2008, 2009. And I've been here ever since. And I've worked both in industrial design engineering and now in architecture and remote environments. So I've not just been in one place either. So that, and in a way, that sounds all like muddled and all over the place and all sorts of different things. But actually, in a funny way, I've found it's really been helpful because then we talk about circular business models or we talk about the engineering problems or I've been looking at this issue around critical materials, which I'll come to in a moment. Or we talk about product design, or we talk about architecture and built environment and cities, and you know, and it, it it's all coming together. So it isn't just one discipline that really focuses on it. It's a multidisciplinary topic, as we all know. So I found this strange pathway and journey that I've had with this mix of things is is helping, although it's not a quick story to tell, as you can do. Can I ask you a question? Mm. Is it is it difficult to interact with? other people that I would say are much more discipline focused, established disciplines. And uh, how do you, how do you work with them? At least you can carry a little bit of credentials because you can drop in the conversation, something, Oh, I worked on such and such and such and such back in the day. And then it's kind of like, yeah, you're not really one of us, but you're okay. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I can talk to you. At least you vaguely understand what we're doing and what we're about. So yeah, I think, I think that helps a little bit. But I'll come on. I do sort of have a specialism focus, which I'll come on to. I think maybe that, that's one of your next questions, I suspect. Maybe we can bring it around to more update the circular economy. First, could you define what is the circular economy? Is it, is it just recycling or, or what is it? No, it's not. No. <laughs> that's one thing. It's not. It's not just recycling. And there is a lot of talk about recycling. And so people go, yeah, circular economy, that's about recycling, right? And, and I'm like, no, um, it includes recycling and recycling is a very important part of the circular economy. And uh, I love it very dearly, but it's not the beginning and the end. Um, and it's not what it's all about. I think, um, and, and there's all kinds of interesting and nice quotes and expressions, you know, I've done a lot of work with the Ellen MacArthur Foundation for a Circular Economy, you know, go on there fantastic website and you can find super definitions and we even have a definition in our circular built environment hub and you can go online and see the definitions but i think i really want to boil it down there's two major things going on and one is climate change and the climate emergency and two is the resources constraint the materials we need the materials we need and priority number one to address that climate emergency the bottom line is a world of five degrees warming. Well, we can put any definition we like on anything, but it just isn't going to be a very habitable place for billions of people. But, but can I, I want to ask you a provocative question. Then maybe we should just do degrowth. Do we yes. really need to be growing yes. the economy? Yes, yes, yes. And that is controversial. And I'm one of a number of growing people who are going, what we need to move away from is the idea that um, going in a circular economy direction, for example, can keep the wheels on the wagon as it is now. So it's so it's a get out of jail card. We we can we can keep going on growing and doing stuff. We just do it in a different way. And I'm just kind of like, it doesn't add up. And it doesn't add up primarily in material requirements over the period of time that we need to deal with in in the nearer term future. And it can't add up in energy requirements. And the two go hand in hand. You know, materials and energy are two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. Maybe we can go off track a bit. For example, in the United States, under Biden now, the, the, the mining sector is really saying that they are a green sector now. 
Hmm. because they're producing the materials for electric vehicles or sure. for windmills or yeah. for solar cells. Yeah. So that that would be more, I don't want to say that's part of the circular economy, but, yes, but that would be is. part of the system going forward. It, 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 where, it fundamentally is, and this is this is where for, for dyed-in-the-wall dyed sustainability folks, for many of them, this topic is is hard to swallow a little bit because, and especially around this topic of which we'll, we'll dig deeper on critical materials. But what's difficult to swallow is, sorry, we need to build this low carbon infrastructure, even in a degrowth economy, even if we can persuade the global north, for example, to halve their resource consumption, halve the amount of stuff we sell, halve the amount of energy we consume, well, more than half, if we can persuade to do that, we still need to build this stuff. You know, you're not going to have coal-fired power stations. You're not going to have oil-fired power stations. You're going to need to build this renewable energy system, this smart grid, smart cities, uh, electric mobility. The material requirement to build that is astronomical and is poorly understood by most people. And it's like the focus has been on what would this technology look like? Does it work? Well, we've kind of got there. <laughs> like, yes, uh, by the way, this is how an electric car can look and perform. I'm like, wow, that's cool. I'm in, you know, and this is how an electric world would work. And it's cool in, in the house in the, in the summer. It's warm in the winter and it's comfortable. And, you know, and you've got this internet and we could do all this stuff. And, oh, wow, this is great. So if this is a low carbon economy. Yeah, that kind of works. And I go, yes, but you've got to build it. And the material requirements for that cannot be met by recycling. And it cannot, we, we can't do product life extension. We can't make stuff last longer that hasn't been built yet. You know, uh, yes, we should make whatever we build, we should make so it can be reused and, and repurposed and remanufactured and whatever for longer. But it's not been built. And the material requirement to build that is Unimaginable. It, it, well, it's not unimaginable. It's easily imaginable. You just do the math and you get the numbers. Point is, it requires primary mining to do it. Now, I'm not, I'm not in the primary mining world and it isn't my core focus, but I've just grown to understand it. And I talk to a lot of primary mining scientists and engineers and such. And it's like, they they do have a point. We need this and we can't do it any other way. And so people that have a problem with primary mining, I understand why, given the environment and social damage it can do, have to sit down and think, how do we have this conversation and develop this construct with these folks? Because we just have to do it. Um, and it's, there is no plan B on this. You know? Yes. If, if we do still have to rely on raw materials to build the future, but then how does the circular economy, is this just a vague concept that... It, we can only build a half a circular economy or no and um th th there's to me uh th there's 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 an element again i talk about the element MacArthur foundation diagram the butterfly diagram there's the bio cycles and that side of things and i have super colleagues in, in holland where i'm based uh, in universities like Wageningen university which is famed for its biosciences and other partners as well uh who who look at that type of work that's not so much my field. I'm much more interested in the techno cycles um, and to do with products and engineering and that side of things. Um, and that fits with my critical materials interest. And, and that techno cycles kind of move steps into two areas. So there's what I call all the product life extension strategies. And that's the, the R ladder, as it's sometimes called the repair, the, uh, sorry, the reuse. We start with just straight reuse. Repair, refurbish, remanufacture. And what they do is put product in use for longer, more cycles. It goes round and round and has something done to it each time it goes round to give it a new life, a new life, a new life, a new life. All through, especially things like remanufacturing that interest me a lot, you do take components and parts out, which you, sorry, we just can't use that anymore. It's had it. That's great. We put that nicely cleaned and orientated into the recycling loops. So again, it's not, there's sometimes this either or, 
And I'm like, no, that's not how it should be. It should be very, it's very complicated and lots of stakeholders and lots of flows of knowledge and materials going on. Mm, um, just, it's this butterfly diagram. Yeah, the butterfly so like one side is the technology yeah. loops. Yeah. The other side is the raw material that's agricultural it. loops. That's it. And I'm on the techno materials product side. Um, that's my focus. I, by the way, I'm not, I, I, I love the other side as well. It's super important needs to be done in parallel together and sometimes they join together in many ways so that that's the product life extension strategies the the re's the the last re is the recycling which is what dominates the conversation often one of the things we talk about is circle tighter what do you mean by circle tighter well the tightest circle you can do is straight reuse and you go well why is that so good because you're not using new materials and hopefully you're not using a lot of energy in what you're doing. So it's just taking a product and then reusing it just as it is. No taking it apart and making new parts or repairing or no, it's just, and that's the tightest you can circle. The, the, the outer cycle is recycling. Why? Because I take this product, I smash it to pieces, destroy it and get what materials I can out of it to put into making a new product. Now, when I do that with a product, there's going to be a lot of loss. There's going to be a lot of energy use and a lot of loss. So, so it's the last option. Too many people are saying, great, I want to do a circular economy. My first choice is recycling. And they go, you need to go through as many of the other loops for as long as you can before you get to this recycling loop. There is another big reason why starting with recycling may not be very smart. You go to a project product design and producing company. They make their money by making an innovative design and selling it to people who value that design and that product and the function and the service that it gives them. And what you say to them is, what I want you to do is take millions of dollars of your, your revenue or your investments and I want you to design it in a different way so that some other company that does recycling gets an easier life and can improve their bottom line and improve their recycling. So you go, yeah, so what's in it for us? Well, you could put a green logo on your website and you go, right, so I invested millions of dollars of my, my, my investors' money into something that benefits another company. So, so design or changing design for easier recycling makes little business sense for the original equipment manufacturer, design and manufacturer. So what does make sense is, for example, and again, I like remanufacturing as a topic. It just happens that I do it. I have colleagues that look at repair and so on and so forth. But I like design for remanufacturing. Why? Because it generates up revenue and business model for the original. And they will change their design because it makes business sense to do it for themselves to get better remanufacturing performance in terms of technical and business terms. But in doing so, they will improve the opportunity for the recycler. So it's a win-win. We didn't start with, let's start with a circular economy recycling. We started with circular economy remanufacturing or refurbish or repair. Start with that. Look for those opportunities, which in turn will generate up a business case for redesign or new service offerings, which will help the recycler down at the end of the line. Mm-hmm. And I believe you have a publication, a co-authored publication that just came out about this. Could you give a real life example? Of a company that, that's looking at this. Yeah, well, there's been loads of, of, of really nice companies that have started up um, in the Netherlands uh, and all over the place as well, where their raison d'etre, their focus is looking at these re-opportunities. I must admit, this is a really interesting question you've asked me, because it's like, can I reel off all the companies <laughs> who are super well-known and doing this globally and really collaborating and feeding into the recycling sector. Well, it's, I would say. I thought that was going to be an easy question. Yeah. (laughs) 
There are plenty of companies. I mean, you know, we've done a lot of work with Philips in the Netherlands. There's um, doing some work with uh, a telco provider called KPN in the Netherlands and many other companies as well, which are sort of brand household names and such. They've all been working hard on this and doing, making good steps. I do sit there and I do go to myself, I say to myself, watch the ads online or on TV or wherever. What are they promoting? And you look at the ads and they go, these are the function, this is the performance, and this is how cool this thing looks, buy it. And that's still what these companies are locked into. What the, none of them are saying is, this is easy to repair. And you can have, and by the way, we're into remanufacturing with this, and this product will last you half a lifetime. <laughs> you just don't see, you don't see many ads like that, you know? So so some of these projects they're engaged with, I mean, I don't, I, and actually I don't like using the term uh, greenwashing, but, you know, it's maybe they're just experimenting in these areas yeah. and improving things. Well, well now, now this leads me nicely into, you know, why? Because there's one thing I know for sure, and I'm very confident about this. The linear economy, how we run things now, is a complicated way of doing things, but it is the simplest way. We've had the whole industrial revolution to figure out how to get clever at this. And we're pretty clever at it. You know, well, <laughs> pretty dumb <laughs> and clever at the same time. Yes. But we've got good at it anyway. What I do observe is when you try and do something, what I think is a far more sophisticated and circular and low carbon, it suddenly involves a lot more stakeholders. The terms and conditions and who gets what is way more complicated. It takes a lot longer. The, the making a quick buck is far harder. You have to have far longer time horizons and, and risk and uncertainty feels greater. You know, and you'd say that to a business and go, this is what you need to do. And they'd look at you and go, that is really what we don't need to do. You know, if I go and do an MBA in business school, they tell you, do not do that. So, so it's a hard sell. And I do understand that. And I do appreciate it. Um, so why are companies investigating and exploring this? And, and as I say, we've got the big household names, we've got lots of new startups as well. They're all moving in this direction. I'm, I'm actually hearing much more from the big management consultants and all the rest of it. They all want to move in this direction too. So why are their clients asking them? I come back to the earlier point. One, the climate crunch, the climate emergency. It is quite clear that moving towards a two, three, four degrees warming earth, there just isn't going to be a business to run. So that, you know, the, the risk alarm bell for the business is overwhelming. And consumers and society and policymakers are just going to go, you cannot do it this way. And they know it, it's coming. And, and already the, the crunch and the pressure is, is building. The other big one for companies, I think, is invest, investments. So if you turn around and you're a company that goes, well, I'm kind of like going to want to keep going on with the fossil fuel based thing. And I think that's a good thing. Could you lend me another, you know, $500 million? The investors will just go, we don't think we're going to see the return of our capital because your business model is just based on fossil fuels and it isn't going to work. We won't, we won't get our money back. I mm -hmm. think that might be one of the biggest things that's quietly happening in the background is, you know, so businesses are turning to their investors and shareholders and go, we'd like your money, please. And they're saying, okay, but you're going to need to do it. With us having certainty, there's a long-term trajectory here. So that that's one around climate. But the other one that I'm I'm really really focused on is material constraints, resource constraint. And this this for me, the, one of the apex areas is this group of materials called critical materials. And mm -hmm. and and companies. What, what kind? Are, what kind of materials are those? Yeah, it's it's a really weird eclectic mix of of materials, and it depends on who's. Uh, which country or region's assessments you look at. I obviously look at the European Union, but I'm familiar with the, the US assessment and the J Japanese assessment and there's various other assessments around the world. Um, now Canada just published one, I think, recently. And what you, generally what you see, you have to think of a two-axis graph, okay? And on the vertical axis, you've got um, uh, 
uh, risk of insecurity of supply. So the chances at a given time, we might not get this particular material. And then on the horizontal axis, you go economic impact. So how much does it hurt if we don't get it to the economy? And then of course you have a box up there and everything in the box up there is, it is a reasonably high risk of insecurity of supply and it will hurt if we don't get it. Um, typically in the news and the media, you'll hear stories about rare earth elements, for example. Mm -hmm. So you hear those sorts of stories about these materials and everybody goes, whatever they are. Um, but there's, there's actually quite a right, wide range. And, and again, it sometimes helps for many of the materials to talk about them as elements. So if you look at the periodic table of elements, or remember it from high school up on the chemistry lab wall, uh, and you sort of say, well, if you think about that periodic table of elements, if you take around half of those elements, half of those are critical. We just saw. That's a lot. That's a lot. When, when I first started researching this about 10, 12 years ago, it was not half. It was about less than a third. So the number has grown that we've defined as critical. Um, and some of them are very exotic names. I don't know, like dysprosium or terbium or neodymium. And, and others are a little bit more familiar, like tungsten. Um, so, so you sort of see a range of, range of, Technology materials typically, mostly metals, not all, although I focus on metals. You've got examples in the European Union list of natural rubber, uh, is, is on a critical uh -huh. list. Um, again, but something like cobalt that's used in yeah. battery making, yeah, is, is that that one of your areas where you know China se seems to be hoarding that hoarding cobalt? Well, well cobalt, so the cobalt is more Africa, so we're talking about uh failed states like uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo that's had a terrible tumultuous time over, over the decades. Yeah, well, the rare earths are the big story in China, for example, and so on and so forth. The, the bottom line, and, and geopolitics plays a big part in all this, and we know this. But the issue is, is, is not, is it, is it China playing unfair trade stuff and da-da-da-da? There's a bigger issue here. Is, do we have accessible and exploitable reserves of stuff that we want in the near-term future for this low-carbon transition and all the other things we want to do, the 5G, digital, AI, big data, blockchain, whatever, whatever, whatever. Do we have enough materials to do that in that period of time? And the answer is we're going to have difficulty accessing the materials in the timescales we need. I want to stress, notice I never once mentioned running out. Okay, so and why, why didn't you mention that? Because that's not a use. And by the way, there's another expression called scarcity, and they are not useful in the debate. Why? Well, number one, you can't measure what scarcity is. I go, I am scarce. Of, of of juice, you know, and they're like, so what does that mean? Is this glass half empty or glass half full? I, I, don't, I don't know what it is. So scientifically, it's a fairly useless term because it's just got a dictionary definition. And the second is running out is, is just fundamentally scientifically flawed as well. Uh, the, the earth is covered in all sorts of elements. Uh, they were all part of the formation of the planet as the, as the, as our solar system formed up in the late heavy bombardment or whatever. We got loads of stuff slamming into the planet. It's all over the place. It tends to be more in terms of mind resources. They're sometimes concentrated in particular areas. And we know those. And then, and so it's not geographically dispersed equally, but it's there. So saying running out is not really useful because no, we didn't run out. We just didn't have access in the quantities that we wanted when we wanted it. With available technology. Yeah, with available technology and all grades. So it's a very, very complicated. And, and the other thing is how do you define a critical material? And again, we'd spend all the time going through all the criteria that you look at in order, I've given the simple two-axis graph idea, but actually how do you decide where goes, what line goes where, and what do you put where? It's a very complicated equation, sort of 
and some of it is is uh, unfortunately not so scientific. There's there's factors which come in with with policy and trade and, and business and all sorts of things which which are subjective. So if we go back to, uh, I mean, you mentioned now, and and I agree that uh, companies are, we could say maybe waking up or being aware that they need to change their business yeah. strategies or yeah. need to change their production methods. They need to become much more sustainable. So they need to look at the value chain. And then how does how does a company go about? And this is even this is even old stuff, right? Like triple bottom bottom line type of thinking. Mm-hmm. But how how does a company, a manufacturing company, go about to change? And to become much more, we could say, just say, sustainable. Well, that, uh, to me, mm-hmm. yeah. No, sorry, I get your question. Sorry, I interrupted you. But yeah, I, go ahead. Go ahead. I think I get the question. I like this idea of value chain. Okay, but actually, we need to look at the whole value chain. And you sort of, what do you mean, the whole value chain? I don't just mean from stuff coming in, us producing something, and and then it goes downstream towards users and, and use and whatever and recycling or whatever, whatever. We have to go all the way back up to mine. You know, where did it come from? Every single element. Where did it come from? How was it sourced? Who paid the price? What price did they pay? And I don't mean financial. So you mentioned the triple bottom line, you know, society is in there as well, as well as the environment and biodiversity, for example. You know, what did we have to pay to extract that resource from some part of the world, often the global south? Um, and what did, what did they get out of it as well in terms of societal as well as financial? Often grossly unfair. You know, so that's fine. We can pay them $3 a day. Uh, you know, they should be grateful for it. By the way, I want this. You know, like, whoa, hold on a minute. We need a bit more equity in the world. Um, and then you, you look at, again, the material itself, but also what you're putting in and taking out in terms of waste, but also energy and carbon typically in all the way through. Now suddenly things get vastly more complicated when you ask for that type of assessment. But if we don't do that, we're just missing out sometimes some of the worst impacts. And then we go, you know, we're doing a great job in our territory, in our region, in our parts of the world, be it USA or Europe or wherever. And you go, well, not really, because there's this part over here which you didn't equate. So I think that's super important. And I, I like the idea of triple bottom line. It, it, it was, it is sound and it's good. Um, and by the way, this is another debate around sustainability, triple bottom line, circular economy. Is this a hype? Is it different? And for me, I, I, you know what? I've got to a stage in, on this poor planet's journey where I'm like, I don't care what you call it. We just need dramatic change and we need it very fast because this poor planet is on its knees. It really does need unbelievable intervention. And I think that's one of the big things that does trouble me a little bit with policymakers and companies is scope, scale, and speed of change is is catching them unawares. The need for change, I think I'm feeling on the wind, there's an acceptance. We cannot go on how we're going on. The, the, the 20th century is over, and it's well over. And we really have to change everything we've been doing in the, since the Industrial Revolution. That's accepted. Now the next part of the, com- the, the conversation is how much, how fast, how quickly? And here's where it gets tough. And let me give you an example. So the Dutch government has said, because governments can say a lot of things, as we know, you know, uh, what we think is Netherlands, as an example country, has to reduce primary material use. This is mined materials by 50% by 2030. Oh, okay, we're all there. 2030, it feels a long way away. It's all okay. Well, hold on a minute. We're, we're halfway through 2021. You know, before we know where we are, it's Christmas. 
And then it's uh, New Year's Eve and we're all excited because we can all travel and do stuff and <laughs> be vaccinated and whatever. And it's all going to be great in this 2022. And you go, well, there's eight years left. So there's effectively eight years left, right? And um, we turn around and say, well, eight years to reduce by 50% the primary material use. Okay. Right. So you can't get 50% less from 2029 to 2030. That doesn't work like that, right? So it's got to be a curve. Okay. So around about 2025, you're going to need 25% less. Because by the way, the first bit will be easier and you can go faster. The last bit is harder. Hmm. So by 2025, my goodness, it's nearly 2022 already. So around about in three years, you're going to reduce by a quarter your primary material use. Oh my goodness. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's keep doing the, let's keep doing the math, right? So you go. So by the end of 2022, you're going to have reduced by 10%, right? And then the room goes silent. Do the companies know this? They, well, I tell them and they go silent <laughs> and they go, what is your strategy over the next 18 months to reduce primary material use by 10%? And by the way, you need to reduce your energy use by about 20% over the next 18 months. And by the way, you're going to need to find many hundreds of millions of dollars to do this in 18 months. And they just look at you and go, that can't be done. Well, in the same way, everyone said, you cannot develop a vaccine to a really, really nasty virus so quickly. We've never done this before on the scale and scope. By the way, do you know how many billions of people in the world, you know, how long it would take to vaccinate USA or whatever, Europe? And we can't do this. So like, isn't it funny how when we really want to do something, we can do something? And that's another reason, by the way, why in my research, I also looked at the Second World War. You know, you can't do these things. You can't build this stuff. You can't make a um, four-engine bomber in World War II every seven minutes. There's no economy in the world could do that. Well, you did. You know, America did. You know, and I'm not saying I'm into building bombers, but I'm just using it as an example of you can't do that. Yes, you can. You can't do that in a couple of years. Yes, you can. When we have to and we want to and we must, we can. I'm full of optimism. I look at history. I'm full of optimism. It's like we can't reduce that much that quick. Yes, you can. But do you think we're at, at that stage politically? Because, I mean, we, you could have, you know, just the company's moving production someplace else. Do we, are we at a stage globally, and maybe this is a little bit off topic, but are we at a stage globally where we're not just moving manufacturing jobs around the world to play with the numbers, basically? The only thing that gives, it's a fair question, and I'm, I'm full of doubt all the while, but the thing that gives me optimism in a way is with resources, be they human or be they materials and with energy, we've gone round and round and round and round the planet. And we've gone to cheaper and cheaper and cheaper and cheaper places, which are no longer cheaper anymore. And we're kind of running out of places to go and people to exploit. And it's the same with resources. We've been chasing around this planet, solving our problems by exploiting more and more and more resources. And I'm thinking, sorry, where else are we going? We're running out of places to go. There is, you know, and people have talked about Africa, the next big thing that we could exploit cheap labor in Africa. And I'm thinking what is likely to happen is Africa will, I hope, develop economically and socially in such a way that it will outpace the speed that China has changed. You know, when I was a kid, China was <laughs> irrelevant. It was nothing. Now you look at economically and socially where China is sort of beginning to get in a position where it's going to leave USA and Europe behind. And they're sort of like, it doesn't take long. And I think it's getting faster. And that in turn is putting the pressure onto resources and climate. Um, where else are we going? I don't know who's leading anymore. I used to think, well, policymakers might be further ahead. 
and companies trailing behind, but now I'm not so sure. Sometimes companies are starting to say, actually, we need something far more radical than even policymakers are talking about. We need to move faster. Yeah, it was really the business that stood up to Trump about uh, these climate change goals and the Paris Agreement. So they, they kind of led, and now, it, at least in my interpretation, seems to have evened out a bit where, where people are on the same page, politicians and business leaders. And maybe, maybe bringing it back around, for example, to the EU uh, and the directives and the emphasis on the circular economy, do you think the EU as a whole has the ability to foster and to push maybe through regulations or through I know, pressure on the national governments to make to push European companies or companies operating in Europe towards these sustainability goals? They, of course, they have the ability to do that and they can go a lot further. In some ways, they have some advantages and some disadvantages. The, the advantage they have is they are less beholden. And, and by the way, this has been a big criticism of the EU, maybe one of the reasons why Britain left the EU, question mark. But they're not beholden in the way that um, politicians are to their electorate directly on a member state level. Yes, there's a European Parliament, but it plays a different role in that way. And the Commission is often driving much more ambitious ideas and policies and strategies. And so in a, in a way, because they... I'm sure no commissioner would agree with this, but they have more freedom to manoeuvre. Mm -hmm. uh, they can be more ambitious. And then they can, through the Council of Ministers and through Parliament, they, they can consult and sort of go... Can we go this far? Can we push it this fast? Can we can we do this? Can we do that? And then because they get pushed back, like, look, hold on a minute. <laughs> no way. The electorate won't stick that in my member state. There's no way we can ask people to do this uh, or ask companies to do this. But I do think they often set the bar higher. And I like the idea of... of other, as, as we call them in Europe, third countries, countries that are not part of the European Union or the European Economic Area. I like the idea that there, there is a sense of, of, if you like, sustainable competition. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I loved it when, uh, when the Biden administration turned around and whether they'll get this enacted or not, but, you know, the sustainability investments that, that they want to make in infrastructure across the USA. And it's kind of like, then I turn around back to member states or I look at the EU and I go, can we match that? Sorry, can we do better than that? Come on, let's have a race to the top instead of a race to the bottom. You know, let's get some sustainability competition going with, with you know, I can do better than you. No, actually, I've got a new announcement. We're, we're, we're going up here, we're going up here, we're going up. I think the big challenge for a lot of the global north, USA, um, Europe and, and, and many other economies around the world, is the global size. And it's again, I, I use the example of the vaccinations. You know, we all know we have not solved this pandemic until it's solved for everyone. And if there's one lesson we've got to take away is running around and getting vaccines for ourselves is not fixing it and just sitting there and waiting for new variant, new variant, new variant, till eventually there'll be a new variant come out. And, oh, the vaccine doesn't work. Oh, clunk back to square one. You know, but this is almost like a, a time to reflect, right? I mean, one sense we, we shut lots, lots of things down, including manufacturing, right? And now there's shortages. Um, but at the same time, we we look at, well, we could say maybe from the developing, developed, developed world at developing countries who don't have access to the vaccine, uh, but the virus is, you know, changing and, and altering and becoming more dangerous, but we haven't been able to help them out. You know, there was only as a manufacturing process itself, again, manufacturing is ramped up, then then we can address yeah, and help the developing world yes. uh, in the vaccine. So yeah. it, it's almost an example of what can happen in the realm of sustainability mm. in that, yeah, developed countries have the money, have the scientific know-how to do the research and development to bring out new products, but they also must be transferring that or assisting the developing world. In, in ensuring environmental protection, for example, or yeah. cleaner ways to, yeah. to live and to produce things. And, and one of the things we're interested in, I've joined a group now working with my technology policy management colleagues, 
And what we're looking at, the key question we're asking essentially is in a low carbon energy transition, what are the especially critical material demands and requirements, but associated strongly with that, how do we do this in an ethically and just way? So suddenly you bring three big things together, low carbon energy transition to, to address the climate emergency or help mitigate the climate emergency. Materials, particularly critical materials, this weird mix, which are essential for these low carbon technologies. But then, hey, we're going to do this. So what issues are we talking about? Top of the list, for example, conflict. You know, we mentioned Democratic Republic of Congo. We know materials have been cobalt is sourced and it's, it's blood materials. You know, people die through conflict and it fuels and pays for conflict. You know, with the tech that we're using right now, the tech in our pockets, you know, we, 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 we're all complicit in this and it's an uncomfortable truth, but it's true. Then there's human rights. Now the game gets really interesting. So there was a case recently in the Netherlands asking questions about solar PV panels manufactured in China. What role did Uyghur people have to play in the manufacture of these products? So suddenly people are asking questions. What human rights abuses go on in order for us to do the sustainable stuff we want to do? I think, and I've heard this said a number of times, we cannot have a sustainable circular future and economy without it being fair. It's got to be fair. And that is new. You know, this mm -hmm. challenges the, the Milton Friedman view way back in the day, you know, the business of business is business. If it's legal in a country and it meets the legal requirements of that country, that's okay. And they're like, I don't think it's going to work like that. And that's why things like the sustainable development goals, imperfect though they are, but at least they're a start. And I think that's exciting. And we should all ensure we do our utmost to meet and exceed those goals. And then when we've exceeded them, and hopefully we hit them in 2029 and not 2030 or whatever, if we, if only, if only we could, then say, okay, we need a new set and we need them going further. Uh, I want to, I want to go back to your, uh, kind of my offhand comment about having a green logo on a product, right? <laughs> so, so I mean, because basically if these sustainable development goals are satisfied and we have a greater equity in the world and a much more, we could just say sustainable world. Then, then, you know, we can have products branded with, I don't know, SDG <laughs> compliant or something or a green leaf, mm -hmm. something like that, that symbolizes that this, this product really is sustainably and equitably, we could even say sourced mm -hmm. and produced. Mm -hmm. How does that get us to, to where we need to be by 2030 or even 2050? Because mm -hmm. the, the, the agenda is much, much, much bigger and the, the, uh, let me change that slightly and just say the role of companies. So if you're mm -hmm. uh, advising a company leader mm -hmm. and they're interested and in, there are case studies of companies changing in the past, you know, what, what should a leader do to, to change their organization? Maybe just one or two steps. I'm actually, it's, that's a really good question because I'm, I'm, I, I won't name the company, but they're, they're a big global company, but not a well-known brand. They, they make equipment and uh, technologies in, in all sorts of sectors. And I started working with them as a, as a sort of independent advisor, just, you know, just helping them out. And I'm, I'm, I'm working with, with a, um, a senior in the business. So that's a, that person is actually asking me these questions, you know, what, sh what should we be doing? And where can we, where, wh where's the quick hits? Where can we make a difference? And, and, so, for example, I know, I know, and I know it's a thing I talked about already, but I said to this company, I said, well, have you ever looked at the business opportunity? Never mind the technology and the sustainability and the environmental or whatever. Have you just looked at the business opportunity of remanufacturing your product? No, we haven't. I said, well, I think there's a business case here. Good. You know, already a business leader is going to say, sit down, 
Because, you know, you ask a business leader, what keeps them awake at night? Is it all the opportunities uh, that they did, the, 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 the things that they should have done that day? And they go, no, I worry about the things I missed. The things yeah. I should have done. That's what keeps them awake. You know, I should have done that at that point in time. I should have realized that's where things were going. I know it's the cliche, the uh, ice hockey puck analogy, you know. You don't skate towards where the puck is. You skate um, to where it's going to be. And that's how business people think. Where is the puck going to be? That's where I need to be to score. And um, so that, that's how I start the conversation off. It's sort of like, look, I could sit and talk to you about critical materials and carbon and the five degrees warming. And, I, you know, I could tell you all the disaster and nightmare. That's all risk for you and risk mitigation. That's not going to get you out of bed because that's not that's not what excites you. I start off with saying, have you heard about the business opportunity that this could offer you? And I, oh, that's interesting. I think you're going to find governments and clients and other purchasers really interested. And by the way, that's one that I often say to a lot of companies. Are you watching public sector procurement? And then you see their faces like public sector procurement. What do you mean by that? I go, the stuff government buys. And they go, okay. Yeah, it's quite a big market, right? Yes, it's 20% of any given market. 20% of spend is government purchase. You know, and again, we come back to the Biden investment program or EU Green Deal and investment program and the, the, the low carbon infrastructure build and change. It's trillions and trillions of dollars is going to be spent. And I look at companies and I go, are you going to be ready to put in proposal that will get accepted for that opportunity? And then suddenly they sit and okay, so what do we need to do? I said, well, let's look at this remand. While we're looking at the remand, why don't we look at the recycling thing? While we're looking at that, why don't we look at your energy use? Now you generate another. And then suddenly the whole thing starts to snowball. You know, so you just grab hold of something that's tangible and realistic and doable. So can you, is there enough knowledge and experience on how to do remanufacturing? Um, yeah, about all the industrial revolution, we've been doing remanufacturing. So we kind of know how to do it. Um, yes, there are better ways of doing it. And there's lots of questions we need to answer, but we can do it. You know, we know how technically we know how to do it. Let's just do it. And, and going back to the public procurement, I mean, in one sense, those public procurements by governments are have conditions on them, right? The right. latest regulations yeah. uh, and the, basically the latest political demands that yes. the government is expecting of companies. Yes. yes, yes. And they will turn around with things like, we would expect materials to be ethically and responsibly sourced. We would expect that you will do a low carbon offering. We expect you will re use renewable energy. We would like to see you offer us uh, repair and upgrade and remanufacturing opportunities, which are of value to the, to the taxpayer, you know, and so like, oh yeah, that's what they're going to ask for more and more and more. And then you like go, that's a fifth of spend. Just keep mm -hmm. the, and you sort of go, where's the fifth? And you go, hold on a minute. Just go through the list, you know, schools, universities, police, military, coast guard, highways, infrastructure. I, I look out my window, street lamps, you know, the, the list goes on and on and on and on. And you start just walking around where you live and you look and it's amazing because you can go public sector procurement, public. Now I start looking, there's like everything around me is bought by municipality, uh, local, or, or state, a region, uh, province, or, or local region, or national, federal. It's it's all over the place. And, and it's, it's constant change. And it's constant, constant you know. I mean, you, you, and if you visit the Netherlands, and it's a lovely country to come and visit. You just see so much infrastructure build going on all the time. Uh, by the way, we keep our feet dry. I live below sea level. You know, it's it's because we invest all this money every day in pumping the water out and keeping the dikes fixed, you know, that I keep dry. So I'm kind of happy with the infrastructure spend, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, I live in Hungary. We have great football stadiums. Yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> David, I, I'm uh, recognizing the time. I just have two more questions for you uh, before we finish. And one is about teaching 
And my, my question is very broad, so I'll let, let you answer it the way you want to, is, you know, how do you teach about sustainability and circularity? Because the topic is so broad. I mean, we, we, we've been all over the place in the last hour or so yeah. on, on this topic. And yeah. how do you, because uh, actually I, I'm, I'm teaching on this topic as well, yeah. but how do you kind of bring students in right. uh, and introduce the concepts and walk them through what, oh, what you know, companies can do? I love this question. And the reason I love it is because I'm now just on the cusp of shifting my work much more into education. Um, there, there was a, there's been fa- fabulous opportunity for people in universities to win research funding and do all sorts of interesting research and activity. And I've been super busy on that and running all mainly European Union funding in my case and super. And I thank the EU very much and they've done super work with me and I'm really happy about it. But I just reached a point recently, maybe it was a COVID thing as well or whatever. And I just thought I need to get back to basics. I need to teach on this. We need lots of new generation of people coming through with the skills and knowledge we need to make a difference. So we're just about to ramp up the circular built environment offering in my own faculty. I was just chatting to colleagues today, again, in in industrial design, engineering and technology policy management. How do we get this embedded much more into education? And what strategies or pedagogic strategies are we going to deploy to make this work? One of the things we observe and we know is doing is far more well-received by students than lectures and talking and case studies to look at. They like to get their hands in and do stuff and make stuff. And um, I think that's a direction of travel I want to try and explore a lot more. How do we blend, I know there's the blended classroom with the idea of online and physical, but when we're doing stuff physically, how do we make stuff? Or or do we need to go somewhere and do the stuff? That interests me as well with students. So I'm doing this project on circular maker space, for example, and we're having discussions with a city in, in, in the Netherlands, Venlo, where we're saying, can we engage students into practical activities in a maker space in the city in a circular way. They learn, they make impact, they engage with citizens, companies start up, new things happen, win, win, win. So that's the direction of travel I'm going to want to try and go in. The other one I've been doing a lot of, and it's all available out there, is the massive open online course. Mm-hmm. So I've got a I've been involved in quite a number and with colleagues and we've got a load. So if you go on the Delft X, we use edX as many other platforms, of course, and you go on that site and you just, you type in circular, you just get lots of different courses in all sorts of different ways. And I love that because I love it being free and I love it being open and accessible. You know, what do you need? You need an internet link and you need to understand basic English. You can go. I love that because that includes the world as well. Then it's not an elite topic. It's open to anyone. And boy, we need everyone. <laughs> those are, those are two strategies, doing, making, making a difference, working with citizens, online, open. That's the other direction I've been interested in. Yeah. From my experience, that's the best. Just even small pro, I mean, it depends on the time the students have, right? Yeah, but yeah. have them do something, have yeah. them, I don't know at least interview someone or create a plan of kind of a business or how to coordinate with other businesses on something. Or even just something similar, get some tools in and tear down a product and just take it apart. Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah, product teardown is always good fun. You know, smashing stuff up is always interesting. You learn a lot when you take something to pieces and then you go, now put it back together again and make it work. Like, ah. (laughs) Yeah, I used to to have this assignment where uh, it was like from the internet, like 10 easy hacks or something, like making a a fender for your bicycle from a bottle or something. And so I just had the students come up with something in class, whatever they had in their bag, you know, come up with something, you know, to, to... make something from something else. And it, it just makes us thinking start. Repair is nice as well. I got a colleague who works a lot with iFixit and, and you know, there's all sorts of super materials and, and information there. And um, I think that's a really nice educational tool as well. You know, can we 
bring some product in. Let's see if we can repair it. And what do we learn from this? You know. Yeah, everyone. Maybe that's the uh, project for the term. They bring a <laughs> broken something in, and then have to fix it. I yeah. mean, it depends how complex it is. Yeah. But <laughs> that's exactly. Yeah. But learning that you can't fix it, and then say, well, how would you have designed it? How would it be done differently? How would the business model work? How could this be done? How do we just not do stuff like this anymore that can't be fixed? You know? Rather than going out and buy something new. Yeah, just buy a new one. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, well, it gets into the almost the sharing economy too, right? Yeah. But you're still not owning. In- and there, I mean, we could talk a long time about problems with that. The, you know, this journey is going to be as complicated and as weird as the centuries that we've had since the industrial revolution that's that's been a weird and strange journey and strange outcomes good and bad in many ways um and we're starting a new industrial revolution it's going to be everything is going to be different isn't that wonderful how lucky we are you know you got to do these narratives we are the lucky ones we are living at the moment when everything is going to be different no, absolutely. This is why it's so exciting for me to do this podcast because it's like, where are we headed by 2050? So that's my last question for you, David, then is what, what kind of, I don't say energy system, but what kind of maybe economy or manufacturing system do you want to see by 2050? I looked a lot. It's funny to answer the question about the future. I looked back in history. Um, and one of the things I was in, I said before I was interested was with World War II. And I looked at Britain in World War II. And there was a massive focus. Uh, they, they had all these things where they just had to use half and half of stuff and it was rationed and there was only one single design for X, Y, Z. You know, it's very constrained, constrained, constrained. So you sort of go, well, that's not very optimistic, exciting. And they knew citizens were not going to be very happy with this. You know, I can't get what I want, when I want, how I want it. You know, just not accessible to me. So one of the things they did was said, well, Okay, let's look at other things that you can have. Would you like concerts? Would you like libraries? Would you like access uh, to learning? Would you like to be able to do art and design and different things? We can provide that for free. You can learn, you know, this self-actualization. You can live, work with others, share your ideas and thoughts, discussion groups, whatever, whatever, whatever. That we can give you. And that's what they did. And I think that might be the exciting space as well. So if we can't have all the tech stuff we want whenever we want it because of various constraints, by the way, plenty of studies show it doesn't seem to make us particularly happy. The more stuff we have, the unhappier we seem to get. Why don't we look at the stuff that makes us happy? So being creative with, with, with each other, learning from each other, sharing experiences, doing things together, that seems to make us happy. That seems to give us a sense of well-being. So I really like the idea of sustainable well-being focus. And I know it sounds a bit airy-fairy, and but I'm thinking that's got to be the way forwards because actually when you talk to most people, and whatever background they're from, would you like to do something together that's quite fun and a laugh? And they go, oh, yeah, it's just human nature. We like to do things that are fun and a laugh. By the way, that are not killing the planet while we do it. But that might be, you know, a side thing. It just happens. No, I, I, I absolutely agree. I've had a guest on before, Mark. Um, oh, I forget his last name. I have to go back and look. Uh, and and uh, he's published a book on well-being. Uh, as well and like that's the future and that's how it gets us towards the sustainability i would say maybe in society much more and yeah. awareness is yeah. treat our well-being that we all just don't have to cre- uh you know create more gdp or that's how things are measured but how is our well-being as a society and that ties right into the sustainability aspect and you're and the thing is as well when we look at many of our societies especially in the global north as well they're very fractured Politically and socially, we've got into different tribes and we're very much in tension with each other. You're either for me or against me. Isn't it interesting now? Sometimes you get people around in the same room with an activity to do that's creative or something like that together. And then suddenly that just diminishes. It's sort of like, well, 
we disagree on some things, but if we don't talk about those things for five minutes, actually, you're just fine. <laughs> and you have skills and knowledge, and I have skills and knowledge, and we can share them, and you're not so bad. You know, and we've got to find that common ground together. I mean, we just can't, you just can't keep at war with each other all the time. It's just a lose-lose game. Um, yes. So, so maybe that's another solution that we find these activities that are not using more product and using more energy based, but actually creative to help bring communities and societies at least a little bit more together. And then, yes. and then we might hit more of those sustainable development goals. <laughs> See, that would be great. And maybe these sustainable development goals can be uniting for countries. Yes. Whether China, the United States, the EU as a whole. Yeah, yeah. Uh, these are what can unify the, the world by, in a direction towards 2050 when we really... I mean, because there's it's not just a threat of climate change, yeah. right? Like, we're in real trouble. And everything has to change. And whatever wars break out between countries, it's nothing compared to if we don't address climate change. I, exactly. And then I have this book on my desk, uh, and never mind the wow. title, but it's this image here, which is Earthrise. You know, uh, from that. Okay. It's called the United United States and the Global Struggle for Minerals. Yeah. Alfred E. Eckes Jr. Yeah, when was that right, published? Yeah. Nineteen seventy-nine, I think. But it's that image there, Earthrise, where suddenly humans for the first time, was it Apollo 9, was it or something? Um, no, Apollo 8 went round, went round the moon for the first time and saw Earth rise. And that's that image. And what struck those guys was like, oh my goodness, it's tiny. That's it. That is home. And <laughs> it's tiny. That is all there is, you know, and uh, I like the Buckminster Fuller, you know, Spaceship Earth. That's it. So that's it. We just got to get on with each other and find a way and fix it. And we faced big challenges in the past and we fixed things in a big way together. Um, finding different ways, replacing the use of energy and materials with other things, which are far more fulfilling and make us happier. What's not to like? <laughs> exactly. David, I want to thank you so much for, for talking today and taking the time to go through all these questions. Thank you very much. It's been fun. I love it. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We produce the My Energy 2050 podcast to learn about cutting edge research and the people building our clean energy system. If you enjoyed this episode or any episode, please share it. The more we spread our message of the ease of an energy transition, the faster we can make the transition. You can follow us on LinkedIn, where we are the most active on the My Energy 2050 page, or on Twitter and Facebook. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. Thank you for listening to this week's episode.